It's been quite a week for people coming out with some quite unexpectedly bold statements. Of course, uh, the media has focused on comments by the Children's Commissioner in Scotland about uh, Nicola Sturgeon absolutely not living up to her promise to protect children. We have a bit more of a look at that. Uh, we also look at other blurts from, for example, Alex Cole Hamilton, the Lib Dem Scottish leader, who thinks that Scotland should never be a nation again. Um, at Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's admitted that the Tories were actually gerrymandering the vote uh, by their voter ID system. And Nigel Farage, who basically says Brexit has failed. Ooh, our missus. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Reddick podcast and I don't know about you folks out there but it it seems to be a week for politicians and others for saying things out loud. I mean we've had uh, Brooks Adamson, the the, the retiring uh, Scottish Children's Commissioner, we've had Jacob Rees-Mogg, we've had Alex Cole Hamilton, we've had Ian Dunnett. I mean where do we start on people saying things out loud? I mean it's it's wow. It, it is a bit of a one, but, but but you should tell people in case you you know you you uh, you tune out a little bit and don't pick up all these headlines. Um, Alex Cole Hamilton was speaking at the Oxford Debating Union in a debate and said, "We are a people. This is the Scots trapped between flags, between politicians who mythologise and pine for ancient nations. Here it comes that can never and should never exist again." Mm-hmm. Obviously, reply sort of talking about, I don't know, you know, the ancient rural Britannia, but also the nation of Scotland, which has got total pelters, obviously, from the yes side of things. And I see <clears throat> on the national, a petition has just been set up to calling on Alex Cole Hamilton to resign. I mean, on that one, clearly, you know, the Lib Dems are a unionist party, but it's an extraordinary one because they always were a federal party. They were the ones that always pushed federalism back in the day. And the federalism is based on the notion of nations. And even if they weren't, it's an inconvenient fact that the United Kingdom is a union of nations. So what he's actually talking about is like mind blowingly. He does this. I mean, I wish I could remember, you know, the number of times he's kind of come out with something that he's rapidly had to just backtrack on. I don't know if he got carried away with himself in the kind of fetid atmosphere of the penguin outfits and everything in the Oxford Debating Union. But I mean, that's going to be one that will get chucked in his face rather a lot, I'd imagine. Um, I'll let you, let you do the Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, and there's a bit more to it, you think. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg turned around uh, and specifically referring to the idea apparently being floated in the Labour Party to extend the franchise to 16, 17-year-olds and to European citizens living here who pay tax, said, ah, parties should be aware of gerrymandering uh, uh, voting. Uh, look what happened uh, to uh, in the local elections in England, uh, where we introduced voter ID to uh, he said it quite out loud to, to gerrymander the vote in our favour. And lots of these old people uh, who are conservative voters, you know, didn't turn up to vote. So beware when you start to gerrymander. So that was, yeah. I mean, you're thinking, what? what? I mean, it, you're, uh, it was, it was mind boggling. There's also <clears throat> layers within layers of this, because that is yeah. the bit that catches the eye. The yeah. fact that he's just casually just said, yeah, we were trying to fix it. No, look what happened. We forgot that older people get a bit flapped about 
producing voter ID as well. And we lost our basic constituency. But the, the other thing within that is the, the, the tremendous kerfuffle there is about having European citizens and 16 and 17 year olds voting who've been doing it for years in Scotland with no fuss. Yes. And th- this is the bit that's always missed out. It's as if, you know, in coverage of stuff, there's so little mention of, of the, the, the fact that what's being, you know, that's causing a total stooshy down the road uh, in London has actually just been quietly jogging away in Scotland. I mean, just before we came on air, somebody from Jeremy Vine's programme on Radio 2 phoned me up and their big stooshy at the moment, sorry to, in- to interrupt your list of people who have mm-hmm. had funny blurts, um, is that, you know, the, the taxation changes that will effectively happen if there isn't a, a change in the thresholds you know, if there's a continuing freeze in tax thresholds mm-hmm. in England, then basically it looks like the I think one of the papers today is suggesting that teachers, nurses and electricians will be paying the 40 pence tax rate. So that's causing a big flurry. I doubtless we'll get onto this about the Conservatives kind of little internal war that seems to be happening mm-hmm. at the moment. Um and yet, once again, the reason that he'd phoned me and actually fair play to him is that, you know, he'd realised the Scots are already on a higher set of thresholds. And actually, the top threshold is substantially higher um, than than it is down south. And everyone will remember uh, the the huge kind of outcry there was by Quasi Quartang and Liz Truss in their lettuce period when uh, they they were outraged at the notion that Scots were going essentially in the other direction than cut tax cutting them um, and demanding that, that the Scots get into line and and reduce the you know the tax take so that they have the same problem they have down the road which is fundamentally crap public services with not enough money to fund them so um, you know so that that's another kind of one that seems to have just burst through there that that people at least let's be fair to them radio 2 have picked up that the scots have trialed this one already and i don't know there might be i don't think i get out enough these days there might be disquiet about the levels of tax in scotland but it seems to me despite you know tabloid attempts to whip it up it doesn't seem to have become a particularly big issue but then it's having to kind of fight off quite a number of other ones mm. But still, <clears throat> back to your list then. Who who else have we got? Nigel Farage. Oh, 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 oh Nigel yes. Has, has, yes. has basically said uh, n- neither. You know, he's he's saying Brexit has failed, but obviously it's not his fault. You know, Brexit has failed because we're regulating our own businesses um, more than when they were regulated as EU when we were EU members. So basically, he's saying the Tories have let the country down very badly by not doing the right thing with the control that they have retrieved. <sighs> Yeah. So there you have it. You know, Brexit was a mistake. Yeah, not, okay. not really. You know, I mean, that's ah. twisting his words a bit. It's yeah. just, uh, you know, there, there's the thing. You can take back control, but then you need someone as ferociously right wing as Nigel and various other people to create the, the deregulated Singapore that these yeah. guys always wanted to have. Yeah, I mean, and that's, of oh course, there's so many things floating about in my head just now, because, I mean, um, the uh, what Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, was also uh, on about the fact uh, when he was interviewed uh, recently, I think it was I think it was on Sunday. Again, in, in the mind, in the mind merges Sophie Ridge and Laura Koonsberg and all these programmes together. When when asked to name the Brexit benefits, actually said that we uh, he said out loud that if it hadn't been for Brexit, uh, Ukraine would have been conquered totally by Russia. 
you know, it was because we were out with the European Union that Ukraine has survived. And I mean, it just gets worse and worse. And as an old Marxist, you know, it's one of these things, these Brexiteers. I mean, they, they, they seem to be repeating the, the mantra I heard from certain folk on the left that the, the reason why Marxism uh, um, and the concept of communism had, had failed was because it hadn't been done proper, you know, it hadn't been done proper. And that's what's happening here is that the, 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 the emphasis has been shifted over Brexit to actually claim the fact that it hasn't been done properly because that Rishi Sunak, you know, who was, who was, a, who was a Brexiteer before many of the others were Brexiteers and is utterly committed to the project, is rolling back on it. And uh, it, yeah, you just can't, you, can't, you, you cannot make the, this up. But it's it's kind of a, it's also a bit like I mean, actually, just while we're at it, Rhys Mogg was also claiming in this National Conservative, what is it? Oh yeah, the you National Conservative on to that. Nat, Natcon. Yeah, we'll just call him Natcon. Natcon. Okay. Well, he was saying there that extending free childcare was fundamentally anti-conservative. I mean, I, honestly, I don't know why we pay any attention to this yeah. living dinosaur, mm. except that, you know, yeah. I suppose he, he is kind of like a bit of a, a warning of what lurks beneath. But then this is interesting because that's already brought out some of the sort of, you know, if we were back in the day, we'd be talking about the dries and the wets, would we not? Yes. In that the wets have come out and, and said, well, actually, if you put childcare in, it lets more people be freed up to get into the workplace to potentially take the jobs that Suella Braverman is so upset that we're needing to have folk come in from abroad to do, you know, like that's that's there's there's a sort of other conservative take still sitting within the sort of slightly nasty lines of their thinking, but not quite as self-defeating as Jacob and, you know, his nanny, basically. So <laughs> it, it seems like, I mean, with particularly with this NatCon conference that's going on again today, today being Tuesday, they're on it. They're on at it again. And it does look like it's an alternative party in the making. Yes. Uh, well, or is it the party that, that Sunak is trying to hold together? I mean, that, that, that odd coalition that Boris Johnson managed to, to, to create uh, between traditional conservative voters and that, that seems to have gone tonto for them down in, in the leafy, the leafy areas of the, the southeast of England where the Liberal Democrats, I mean, we talked a lot about Labour making gains in the Red Wall, but the Liberal Democrat gains in the Blue Wall in, in areas like Stratford, etc., which, which was unheard of before the Tories were wiped out. But we're, Sunak is attempting to keep that odd coalition together between traditional Conservative voters and those who are on the right in these, these, in the red wall areas in terms of immigration. And it comes back to what Jacob Rees-Mogg also said there about gerrymandering, because the focus, and I noticed this on Sophie Ridge, that Grant Shapps was not asked by Sophie Ridge at all about his role in terms of energy, unlike Laura Kunzberg. The, the entire focus was on this rise in legal migration, so-called, from uh, up to 700,000 people, net migrants coming into the country. And that's the attack that is currently going on. And when you, you link what Jacob Rees-Mogg has said and those people who are speaking, either virtually or at this NATCON conference, such as J.D. Vance, the, the U.S. Senator, who's been forwarding this uh, great replacement theory that the Democrats are actually encouraging migration, in particular illegal migration, in order to secure votes to ensure there will never be a Republican government again in the United States of America. And that great replacement theory, if you actually translate it, which is, which is being talked about maybe not in those terms, but it's actually being forwarded at the NatCon conference, was being pushed by Suella Braverman, who's made it her 
ambition not only to, to, to send people to Rwanda, but to reduce net migration in, into this country through legal methods down to 100,000 a year. And again, that links into what Mog was saying about gerrymandering and that whole thing. It, it just smells entirely, Leslie, when you look at the people who are actually speaking at this NatCon conference. It's not only people like J.D. Vance, but you've also got Michael Gove, Suella Braverman, our friend David Frost, and rather odd creatures like Rod Drecker, uh, who's self-exiled in Hungary and is a big Orban supporter, you know. And these are the people who are now speaking and are now becoming more mainstream within the Conservative Party, and Sunak is going to have a hell of a job holding that together, and he, can he play the both sides together in order to secure secure a Conservative victory in 18 months' time? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but anyway, I, I, yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's, that's the difficulty. And I mean, if anybody was just sensible about this, and, the, you know, this is like pie in the sky stuff. And this is part of the problem with the whole British outlook is that if you actually had proportional representation, you know, you could you could retain yeah. your, your all your conservative wings by just letting them develop into different parties and mm-hmm. then coming together in a horrible big coalition like everybody else does. But anyway, this way, you just have this constant need to try to create the facade of a united party when you've actually got completely different thinking within your midst yeah. that constitutes basically two separate parties. I see that Rishi Sunak's off in Iceland today trying to get away from it all in Council <laughs> of Europe summit. But while he's there, they're speculating that he's, well, in fact, he is having a meeting with the European Court of Human Rights president yeah. to try and <clears throat> argue for a reform of the rule that's the one that stops, that, that allows European judges to stop deportations to Rwanda. So he's desperately trying to get some sort of result out of all of that, though. I mean, dear knows why anybody, you know, why why would they actually need to do anything about it? It's hard to see. But still, this this thing about, you know, these debates. um, I was listening to uh, Drive Time yesterday and uh, John Beatty was having a pretty, I thought, pretty vicious go. And I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the last because I didn't catch it and couldn't find it later. Um, who was gamely trying to explain why migration is useful to Scotland mm-hmm. in that, you know, our, our population, our particular profile of industries and so on. Um, but but he kept coming back about the cost of it and how it's displacing other people. And, you know, haven't we got enough? But it, it was a very I've got to say it was a very Braverman sort of line. Now, fair enough. You do have to kind of stir yeah. things up and put the opposite point of view. But it was relentless enough that it did become quite overwhelming, basically. And this is the difficulty of that kind of stuff entering our world, because it looks like that's our Scottish consensus. Whereas today in the Herald, Wendy Alexander will remember her, mm-hmm. who I didn't realise is a vice principal of Dundee University. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually um, criticising the UK government and saying that uh, that they're using it particularly overseas students as political footballs in all of this because they'll do anything to just get the numbers down of people that look like they're migrants. Um, She's citing a new report that's out that the peril goes big on by University UK International, which basically says um, that, that, that overseas students contribute, I mean, a whopping amount that they've translated down into £750 a year per Scot, which is a lot. And that there's been a 60 percent rise in income in six years. She's arguing that that basically offsets the difficulty presented 
financially uh, for universities by the fact Scots don't pay tuition fees. You would wonder if there's a point eventually where actually they prevent Scots taking those places. Um, mm. There's there's a, a statistic that suggests the first year of Scottish universities, 34% is now foreign students. But actually, it's 36% in Northern Ireland and 40% in London. That's not to say uh, that's all OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but her point is that basically there's going to be a change coming by the UK government which will restrict people from bringing their families if they're mature students. And she's saying that will cause big trouble because nowadays a lot of the people coming are mature students. Um, And that, in fact, the last statistics they have, 2012, though, 96 percent of those students and their families went back when their time, you know, when they'd done their time and spent some time with work experience, which is another thing the Tories are trying to clamp down on. You can currently stay for two years now it's going to be six months, which seems to be losing a lot. You know, after these, mm-hmm. a lot of people have put roots down and, you know, decided they might want to ch- stay. Obviously, Wendy Alexander is warm to the fresh talent initiative that Jack <clears throat> McConnell put through back in the day. Uh, but there's the point. That was the drift. Fresh talent was backed by everyone back then. From my memory, even the Scottish Conservatives. Because there was so obviously a need to try to tr- pull people north and keep people here. So coming back to your John Beatty, it's just th- th- this kind of the harshness of what comes out of Suella Braverman is seen as some sort of, you know, let's real talk Turkey here and enough of your fluffy stuff about human rights and, you know, yeah. kumbaya, we want to teach the world to sing. Uh, this is all costing too much. We need these people out of here. Well, it's strange, actually, because, you know, that this report today is suggesting that that um, there's a massive input to the whole British economy. But actually, Scotland is only second to, to, to London in terms of the amount that's raised from overseas students. So which which are you paying attention to the kind of Suella Braverman headlines or the more thoughtful pieces that, you know, emerge here? And I'm sure there'll be people with things to say back in, in terms back to that in terms of whether we have now got an education system that is basically geared to teaching overseas mm-hmm. students, which, again, might, you know, is, is not ideal. But let's have that discussion. Yes. You know, not the sort of just take Suella Braverman's headlines and bash some lass over the head when she's, you know, come in to try and make a whole series of different points. Yeah, but that, that, you're absolutely right, Liza, because but before we actually, I mean, think about this being the extremes of the Conservative Party, it's the way it's actually permeated, because NatCon, the, the, this National Conservative uh, Conference, it's, it, it says it's the idea of the nation, a revival of the, wait for it, unique national traditions that alone have the power to bring together and bring about their flourishing. So that's what we're faced with there. And it's permeated the Conservative Party because when we go back to Robert Jemrick, who who was absolutely slaughtered on Channel 4 when he came away with the, the whole nonsense about the asylum seekers having to seek um, asylum in the First Nation that, that, that they came to by Christian Gurumurti. And uh, yeah, Christian was very, very good. And he says, well, I think you're wrong there. Well, he was downright lying. Uh, but Jemrick in a policy exchange uh, think tank said the nation has the right to preserve itself excessive uncontrolled migration threatens to cannibalize 
the compassion of the British public. And that that's where we're at. It is there and it goes right back. I mean, and people say, I didn't start with Johnson. As we've said before, this goes right back to David Cameron, where the Tories in the European Parliament left the, the centre-right Christian Democrat sort of mainstream conservative uh, groupings in the European Parliament and sat with people like uh, the right of the, the right-wing Polish party, uh, Viktor Orban's party, all these right-wing weirdos we perceive them as who are now entering the national dialogue and, as you say, threatening to create that narrative across the UK that says this is the country that we are and this is what we're like and it's that, that, that drift and that permeation into the mainstream and I say well, you're right, I think Sunak is going to have a hell of a job in actually maintaining the unity of his party and Suella Braverman at that conference was uh, talking about her family background and where she came from and everything and if I've ever I've seen someone who had a, both eyes on the prize of becoming the next leader of the Conservative Party it's Braverman and watch out for her. But the other thing that you, you talked about, about the, the, the benefits of migration, I was fascinated by the article that you read, particularly as a, a Dundonian whose family had roots in the jute industry and people who worked in, in shipbuilding, by the tale of the two Scots who actually created the uh, the uh, the weaving industry and uh, the shipbuilding industry in Gothenburg. And it isn't just about history, it's about what Gothenburg did as a local authority to secure the economic future when these industries, particularly shipbuilding, went bust in the 1990s. Yeah, well, this 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 was just the result of my fascination, obviously, with all things Nordic, but with Gothenburg particularly. I mean, Billy Kay has written a lot about the connections, all of these guys. Uh, But I was kind of just wondering how it all fitted together today. And uh, when I went there, I... um, I visited a place called Jonsered, which is the almost like a re- reproduction of Robert Owen's new Lanark that sits inland from Gothenburg on a particularly good drop from a lake at the back, which which uh, which funnily enough was not spotted in a sense by any Swede, but by two Scots who basically had already experience of the Industrial Revolution for, for good and for ill in Dundee um, and came across Alexander Keeler. And William Gibson, Alexander Keeler was the kind of technical machinery man. Uh, William Gibson was the entrepreneur or capitalist, shall we just call a spade a yes. spade? Um, and between them, they spotted this location, figured that they could put in it a mechanized textile mill, which astonishingly in 18, uh, the 1830s, 1840s, there were none in Sweden. Um, so they they put this in. Because there was, it was not from the goodness of their own heart, but these were empty riverbanks. <laughs> you know, this was a slightly mountainous location. So there were no houses. There was nothing there. So they had to provide uh, housing for people. And then because there was such pushback from local people about the worry that anybody uh, that fell out of being a work a worker um, at Jonserud would suddenly fall onto the parish with them, uh, they had to produce, provide all the kind of in-kind support, sick, which resulted in very low, but nonetheless, sick pay, medical care, kindergarten, a house for older workers who didn't have children. If you did have children, you know, you were their problem. And <laughs> there was a suggestion that this cradle to grave kind of care was a, was a template for the Swedish welfare state that emerged. Um, the lovely woman that I met there, Hjordis Thormans, thinks that 
wasn't totally the case in that uh, these guys were real right wingers um, by, again, you, you're questioning which the outlook and we were looking back in time, you know. So mm. but nonetheless, at the time, <clears throat> the Social Democrats were building trade unions were building in Sweden and they outlawed both. There was no union organization going to happen in their plants. And there was not even they're not even allowed to have social democratic literature. The doors were locked at the end of the day at Yonserid. Uh, you know, it was a tough blooming regime. Mm-hmm. So let's not get too starry eyed yeah. about the whole thing. But still, they basically came in, spotted an opportunity and started that. Now, this chap, Keeler, who was the machine man, um, he also actually spotted another opportunity, which was a rather bigger one, because he was the man who set up the biggest shipyard in Gothenburg, which became, by 1930, the largest shipyard in the world. Now, I say that and I know immediately everyone's going to go, what, the Clyde? Well, this is measured by uh, tonnage uh, that they actually produced. So I'm sure that those who are expert can argue the toss over, you know, perhaps there are more literal ships produced by the Clyde. But anyway, um, so Gotheverken, this was the massive shipyard that he built. Um, His uh, his successors then built another one in the 1950s, you know, on the Gotha estuary, which had indoor construction. And that was apparently a bit of a thing at the time. And that basically propelled Sweden into the position of the world's second largest shipbuilder, which is unbelievable, because at that stage, there were 7.5 million people in Sweden, the world's largest shipbuilder, Britain, you know, sitting on about 55 million. So they were way, way up there uh, uh, at that point. And then, of course, the same thing happened for everybody in the 1970s. There was incredible competition brewing from the Far East, Japan, Korea. There was an oil crisis and then there was a world economic downturn. And if you ain't shipping stuff around, you ain't going to need more boats, basically. So at that point, the yard was nationalized. They shifted to trying to build different types of boats. But it was a bit of a losing battle. Um, Although, you know, one of the people at the time comments that the Swedish state consistently identified itself with the shipyard's cause and all attempts to close it were rebuffed, which is just like Scotland. There's an Mm -hmm. emotional tie there and you're not going to give up, uh, you know, a big industry that's been a core part of your traditions. I mean, basically, the Clyde and the Gotha, two big, the biggest, basically, the the, the, the heartlands of the two biggest shipbuilders in the world. You're not going to let that go. But in 1989, last homemade ship came out of the, Gotteverken shipyards and they did some repair and renovation but they entered the 1990s with 20,000 lost jobs five kilometres of empty docklands and the city essentially at heart broken so just exactly like the Clyde but these guys really got going Um, what happened was that the city council bought the empty docklands for one Swedish kroner which is kind of about I don't know it's about half a pence um, they put house building in, they put six secondary schools in and they linked up with the Chalmers University of Technology founded by who? Uh, a bequest from the son of another Scottish merchant, William Chalmers, who I think also came from Dundee. Oh, yeah. The Chalmers, famous Dundee. Yeah. So um, they set up this Chalmers University of Technology. Uh, that was actually this bequest from William Chalmers was for the poor people of of Gothenburg so that they would essentially 
learn technical skills. How useful was that? Because that then basically became the, the, the focus of a new campus in this Docklands area and a technology park that quickly attracted Ericsson, the Swedish mobile phone company. Ericsson wanted to create a cluster, not just their own workers, but they wanted a kind of cluster of IT companies around them. And this seems to be a characteristic of the way Gothenburg once works, that people don't, you know, they, they basically want to create an industry around them, not just their own guys. Um, and that interdependency, what developed there seems to have helped the whole of them survive the sort of dot-com crash that happened. Uh, but the, but the, strangely, the biggest advance happened when they went forward, confident now that they got a real goer on their hands to get a big lot of money from Sweden's innovation agency and were knocked back. Mm-hmm. So actually what they did was they went ahead without public funding. They put all those companies, put 30 people together for one year to fine tune the finances. Um, and they they won they basically have expanded massively so they've got 375 companies on that land on that dock land that wasn't worth half a pence 30 yeah. years ago including AstraZeneca and it's this sort of you know it's 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 really testing things properly i mean when it comes to testing when i was there um they're actually testing um uh, wireless charging of electric cars wow which is a bit mind blowing. It apparently works in the same sort of induction basis as an awful lot of Hobbs and Cookers do, which actually doesn't help me one iota, to be honest no, with you. But no. anyway, we, we, when we've things got hover one over the spot, I have no idea how it works. When things hover over a particular, you know, pad, essentially, yeah. uh, the, the charging goes ahead. And the, the way they're looking at it, because they are the the, the greenest um they are the greenest destination already, Gothenburg, apparently, in the world uh, for, for tourism. But a lot of that, we've talked about it before, is their unbelievable public transport system. But they're, they're absolutely determined to get cars out of the city. But there's still some that probably need to ply the streets. So, for example, delivery vehicles, taxis, are, we, you know, are you going to get rid of them? Um, so they're, they're, they're trialing this with electric, uh, with taxis to see if they can make this work so that they can, the taxis can constantly be coming to a couple mm-hmm. of places and just topping up all the time because that will take a big lump out of the charging infrastructure they would need to put in. And honestly, um, as my mother would say, I was limp at the end of it, just <laughs> listening to the level of thoughtfulness of, you know, pulling more people in together. Uh, for example, they've got uh, river ferries uh, crossing backwards and forwards. And that's one way that they've managed to get over the problem that the Docklands were mostly on the unfashionable uh, mm. northern bank of, of the Gotha, whilst yeah. the population was on the southern side. And what a delight it is, you know, that, that you can just whip backwards and forwards on on these free ferries that don't have everyone strapped down and whatever. I mean, there's people, most of the ferries are full of people on bikes. Uh, and there's none of this. Oh, you've got to get off and strap your bike up and all this kind of fucking nonsense. Uh, it's <laughs> it's just a good to go place where people trust that you're an adult and that, you know, you, you just want to move around. Uh, so, yeah, I was pretty gobsmacked and just hugely impressed. And the point is, 
when everybody wants to have an argument about, uh, you know, what's happening about the future of the Ferguson shipyard, whether it's going to be returned to private ownership or whatever. And OK, there's a big argument to have in there. The whole thing looks like a very sorry episode. And, you know, you can't argue yeah. that that was a lot of mistakes built into that. But the bigger question is really remaining unasked, which is how are we transforming Scotland's old shipbuilding heartlands? Because what Gothenburg shows is that there is life after heavy industry. Yes. Uh, and, and that really genuinely collaborative thing that they do, uh, you know, that's that's what we need to embrace. Not the kind of just, you know, that, that sort of language in press releases, but absolutely building that in right from the get go to, to to create, you know, some sort of drive. I mean, I am I, well aware that I've spent less time understanding what's happened in Glasgow. I'll be fair than I have in Gothenburg. You know? yeah. So I'm sure people could come back and say, well, actually, we're doing all that. But even the smallest thing, which is where are those blasted river taxis? Mm. You know, that, that's been talked about for so long. But the idea that you can be shifting people quickly and, and regularly across uh, across the Clyde. I just haven't seen that one come off. So, yeah, you know, it's a it's a thought. Yeah, well, what struck me, Leslie, when I was reading the article was about greening, not greenwashing. It was a tale of a, a local authority. It was a tale of uh, where public funding went. And I was struck when I looked at your most recent article in The National, when it's a tale of two councils, a tale of public funding, a tale of greening versus greenwashing, how how totally linked this whole reindustrialization engagement with the local community, working on a brownfield site that had been rejected for all other uses, and comparing and contrasting with what you've spoken about before and speaking about again, which is going on in Torrey with the so-called energy transition zone uh, championed by Sir Ian Wood and the St. Fittick's Community Park, which which still continues to rattle on and still continues to be looked to be going ahead with the support of uh, the Scottish government, if what Joe Fitzpatrick uh, has recently said. Yes, it is. I mean, the, 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 the folk at the Scottish government were very slow to reply to me the day I was writing this article. And to be fair to them, one of them actually phoned me up and said, I don't know why we were so slow doing this. We'll need to figure this out. And, you know, they're, they're yeah. looking at it. However, so the article was basically saying that, you know, the last chance saloon for Tory to not lose its last piece of green space to, so ironic, an energy transition zone in the name of, you know, saving the planet. Yeah. Uh, that last chance was the Scottish government um vetoing or, or basically instructing changes to Aberdeen's development plan, which comes before the Scottish Government for thumbs up or thumbs down or amendments. And now Aberdeen has rezoned this park um, as an opportunity site, which basically means it's now not sacrosanct, as locals had been told it was when they got it about 10 years ago as a sort of booby prize for, mm. for being completely encircled by industry. Yeah, They've got um, a sewage treatment works on one side. They've got two landfill sites with toxic waste just behind them. One's an industrial park, which is what many people think could be used. Um, there's uh, an industrial harbour that's been approved. There's building on an incinerator. I mean, and ironically, because of the level of, of heavy industry at Torrey, they're dealing with everybody else's 
literally shite. They've got mm-hmm. Stonehaven sewage and Murray's rubbish. So the, the, the booby prize for that was being given what was neglected waste ground that the council owned. And they transformed it into this multi-award winning green space with a beautiful burn, with wetlands, woodlands, all the rest of it. And actually reed beds that stop flooding and filter out the arsenic yeah. that's still washing down from the neighbouring industrial estates. Um, and, and I think during COVID, this was a complete lifeline for people in Torrey, which is absolutely the poorest area in Aberdeen and is one of the 500 uh, wards of multiple deprivation in Scotland. So they they want to keep their blinking green space. Uh, they've also, you know, they've got testimony actually from from the local doctor who, mm-hmm. who points out much the same thing that, you know, there's no question now that that kind of green space um, is critical infrastructure when it comes to health benefits. And and he said removing a third of the park, which is what this will do, doesn't uh, just reduce the resource. It degrades the remainder to ask how much park is OK to take is like asking how much health the community can afford to lose. So, yeah. So the net of it is that uh, Joe Fitzpatrick, on uh, who's many, wears many hats, but local government planning and so on, um, has decided not to intervene, which basically means St. Fittick's Park is toast. Or is it? Um, the people are not taking this lying down at all. And they've formed a, a group, the Tory People's Assembly. This will be meeting um, in about 10 days time to try to decide how they will respond to this theft of their land, which is how they see it. Um, they've invited SNP politicians to attend, although they don't expect that to happen because they haven't supported them up till now. Um, although the local Green, Maggie Chapman, and the Labour MSP, Mercedes Villa, Villa Alba, I'm sorry if yeah. I've mispronounced your surname, um, they have been supportive. So anyway, and they're they're saying that they would think of direct action if it comes to it to stop the diggers. Now, how does this actually look to anybody, really? You know, I mean, there's enough blooming areas that you're fighting on. I quite appreciate that you've got your targets sitting there as a national government. You need to get this this uh, this transition zone um, actually had already attracted 53 million pounds into the kitty from both governments, Westminster and Scotland before the planning process had even begun. Yeah. So, you know, this was obviously a done deal. Everyone wants to tick the box. Everyone wants to say that no oil worker is being left behind. They need a place in Aberdeen. Yep. Uh, you know, Torrey, as one of the locals put it, has always been the sacrifice zone so that the, the wealth of the city has been based on one part of the city taking the heat and the pain and the loss of pretty much all their local amenity. And they've basically decided, the, the people, that, you know, enough is enough. And you've, you've, this, this largely arises from the complete inability to do things, the way the Swedes approach it, yes. <laughs> which is it may take you years to get things going. And even in Sweden, people will still talk about the bridge they're trying to build over a bit of a river west of Stockholm that's now taken 20 years to agree. And it still isn't even agreed where it'll go. But you're going to see what happens otherwise. You, you, you know, this will be opposition. This will look bad. This is the little people. These are the working class folk that you need on your side if you're going to see off, you know, the the, 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 the Labour Party in the next election. 
this will again look like. It's people sitting in the central belt with no feel for a city, micro-organising what happens everywhere else. I mean, all of these things will come to pass because you didn't think that you needed to properly engage with anybody. And yeah. to be fair, Aberdeen Council in the same boat, because it is indeed there. It's those are the drivers. But I'll bet you they have been lent on by everyone, particularly they've been lent on by 53 million quid. Yeah. Which has gone to the private sector. Yeah, right. Let's just throw that one in there. I mean, and when you actually look at it, I, I, I looked at the, the, the St. Fittick's. Uh, community page and it's absolutely fantastic in terms of the research that they've done for example the 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 brief that was given for the feasibility study to this company barton wilmore told them told them only to look at tory that was it it was a specific the feasibility study was only to look at tory and when you look at the background of barton wilmore they're a company that that, that boasts you know, it, it can influence planning policy, manage, help you manage complex planning applications and environmental risks and influence stockholder, stakeholder perceptions. We can assist delivering the required consent. I mean, it does see local people and environmentalists as blocks to business as usual. It boasts it can help planning officers play down public concerns uh, to help councillors and it can suggest how you can uh, suggest to local people that adverse adverse implications can be mitigated. So it was given to a company who specialise in this kind of thing and were only told to look at Tory. As I said, the money was punted at Sir Ian Wood and his, uh, his, his, his organisation, Opportunity North East. So the Just Transition Fund is going into the private sector and going into people like Sir Ian Wood and they call it an enterprise, uh, this... Uh, this, this zone, when actually what the, the local people said, it's, it's for marshalling. It's a marshalling yard and it's a construction yard. So again, even the title is an energy transition zone is greenwashing. It's yeah. masking what's actually being done to the local people. Well, you know, they, they, they have really picked the wrong guys here because, you know, these, these guys are smart enough and can actually talk in normal language, which, again, yeah. is, is a tremendous advantage, actually, when you're trying to really engage the public to, to still try and support you. Um, and <clears throat> the, the, the main organiser I've been speaking to, Scott Herrett, also works for Friends of the Earth Scotland um, as a just transition organiser. So, you know, I mean, he's, he, he almost embodies the different idea of how this would really work. Um, but he points out that, um, you know, Everyone knows that there's acres of land deserted by the oil industry in the yeah. nearby Alton's industrial estate. Now, to be fair, and I don't know my geography of this area well enough, but it isn't quite uh, on the water side the same way as yeah. the bits of St. Fittick's Park are. But there's that's tough. Then you just, you know, and anywhere else, you just have to spend more money to find a way around that. The other thing is that quite apart from, you know, bulldozing this swathe of biodiverse habitat, um, they haven't got a confirmed commercial backer yet for the cable yes. production facility, apparently. So this is the point. There's a lot of big talk and a lot of, you know, big promises of the number of jobs and the amount of investment. And, and actually, it's not clear yet that's there. So it's just that this is really a bad form because it's a bad way to work. And yet it's a, it's to my mind, it's a British way to work, which is it's top down. It's micromanaged. And this pattern of behavior is all over the Scottish. I'm afraid to say the Scottish government's way of working. Yeah. 
Um, you just you decide you're going to do something from on high and you sit and figure it out with, you know, kind of Google Maps or something or other in Edinburgh. And you force that template on a place that is a place and a place yeah. is defined practically by being a characteristic somewhere habitat that people love, you know, and I've got different hopes and aspirations for might they, that people know tremendously well. There's a phrase that's used of animals that they are hefted to a hill. I remember that coming in when I was writing about the folk who were given their jotters by the Duke of Buccleuch when he decided to get money for planting trees instead, that, that some of the herd of sheep, I think, that were there were hefted to the hill. And that's particular because that matters then. Animals actually know their terrain tremendously well. We are all hefted. We're all hefted to place. And we know those places, even if that knowledge is completely dismissed and never yeah. taken into account as anything important. An awful lot of people who make decisions in life have lost that connection completely. They're not hefted to anywhere. They have moved around. This is not a criticism. It's the way modern life is. You live in a city. You could move to Glasgow. You could move to, well, back in the day, you could have moved to Berlin. You're, you're always moving, and it's just a question of the size of the flat. That's not how the rest of us work, and that's not actually how any place works. So, you know, it's a, it's a hopeless plea, this. Because after many years of trying to push this different kind of approach that basically is commonplace in every successful nation beside us, it is not being listened to. It just isn't. It's too much mental effort to unpick the habits of many lifetimes and of what people think looks good on, on a sort of, you know, here's what our government has managed to do list. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I I I, I listened to uh, Irish President Michael Michael D Higgins talking about the the dislocation of, in particular, academic econ economists who actually talk about facts and figures and statistics while forgetting the fact that every single unemployment figure is a human being with a family. Everyone mm -hmm. who's not lacking housing is a human being with a family. These are real people. That's real people. And it's just, it, it just, I, 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 I become almost incoherent with anger about what's being done to the, the, the people of that area. And as you say, it's working class people who have had this piled well, but upon still, them. They're still, well, they're they're not still fighting. Yet, you know, so uh, we'll, well, I, I'm, I'm hoping to be involved in that people's assembly. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll report back on what actually happens, though. You know, when you mention another thing, if I can ha have another digression, though, it might mm -hmm. well be into what we're also going to talk about, which is the children's commissioners. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was actually looking at because, I mean, what, what he was actually concentrating on was the basically the 18 month delay over doing yeah. something about the fact the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child um the proposal to incorporate that into Scots law was challenged and blocked by the Supreme Court. Um, and he's saying, you know, well, what happened? And actually, Hamza Youssef has said, yep, we kind of slacked off. We yeah. need to get back onto that one. Now, a lot of people are kind of annoyed. This was the main thing he was talking about. He also talked about the educational attainment gap. We discussed this before. Yeah. You know, my feeling is you've got a big, big problem closing that gap as long as you don't control benefits and the whole yes. economy. But still, um, but let's just focus for a while on, on this, this, you know, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, because it might sound like quite a sort of abstract thing to get kind of hot under the collar about. He, it also means that I don't think he was talking about the things that most of us would see as actually pretty reasonable achievements. The free school meals, mm -hmm. which Hamza Yousaf 
will now, I, I'd imagine, have no chance, even if he was ever thinking about <laughs> doing anything <laughs> about that. That's gone off the table with all this row. That the, the the Scottish child payment, you know, that the candidates were are trying to outdo one another to actually raise, and which is unique to Scotland still, um, free bus travel for under 22s. You know, there, there's there's definite things in there that have helped. But, yeah, the indicators show that child poverty hasn't changed. And you can have your arguments about who's, which government has contributed most yeah. to that statistic. The thing about the Convention on Children's Rights, I had, had a kind of wee look at that one. And actually, this one, uh, the Convention was ratified by the UK in 1991. But the difference that the Scots would make is that if it was if it became um, incorporated into Scots law, it would make the government accountable for not reaching the mm -hmm. aspirations contained therein. So that wouldn't just be a we'd like to teach the world to sing, which is ratifying it. That would be a and you can sue us if we don't. Yes. Now, that is a real biggie. And actually, Ireland is one of the the, the Irish incorporated that into their constitution in 2012. Um, and that they are huge advocates of the change that that's made because it does mean that there's no more shilly shallying and that there's much more public discussion about children's rights and that the whole thing gets lifted up. Uh, the other folk that have already done this, Norway, Finland, Iceland and Sweden, those slouches that we don't tend to take yeah. much attention to. And there was actual when the Scots were about, you know, thought that they'd done it and had had the debate and had you know, moved ahead with this, this incorporation. There was this, if you look online, there's messages of support from all over the blinking globe, including these countries saying, you know, welcome to the sort of progressive club. And this is definitely the way to go because it lets you hold the government to account if it looks like children's rights are being infringed. Now, I think it would be great if we could actually have this proper conversation because that's what the blasted UK government have stopped. Yes. Now, the Scots were essentially brave enough to say, OK, let's be accountable like that. That's what we're going for. The UK government thought we're not having that, actually, because there's a wobbly blooming precedent and a bit of, you know, interference in the zone, which might bring us in the same direction or perhaps make us look bad, which indeed they do. Um, so let's just put the spanner in the works. And it sounds a bit sort of, you know, legalese. So perhaps there there hasn't been the same motor put behind that as there was immediately put behind mm -hmm. the intention to challenge the uh, the British government over its blocking of the uh, gender recognition legislation. So, I mean, the thing to do, I would humbly suggest, is <laughs> it's absolutely right. Let's not take pot shots at, you know, Bruce Adamson for saying what he's highlighted. Um, but Let's get back on the curve and get the challenge to that put back on on course so that we do pass this legislation. But can someone please translate into words of one syllable why this matters so much? Because otherwise, these technical sounding bits of legislation yes. just drift and nobody's quite sure why anyone's making a fuss about them. Well, I will say that he did, in my, my perspective when I watched, he did over-egg the pudding when he said that the, uh, they'd absolutely failed to deliver for young people. I mean, I think that's that's the bit that's probably got to folk. But I think you're absolutely right. The Scottish government needs to step in really, really quickly and explain the pertinence of getting 
getting this legislation through and getting it secured. And I was glad to see uh, that Hans Yusuf says, yeah, we, we, we've, we've spent 18 months doing it. And yeah, you know, what we were trying to do was just make sure that it would be all tickety-boo so the UK government couldn't step in. Well, yeah, right. Okay, let's get on with it now, Hamza. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, because one of the other things about... Uh, I nearly said Bruce Beresford again, which is an entirely different person. No, that's another Bruce, Bruce now. Yeah, You've got another three Bruce, Bruce's in your mind. three Bruce's anyway. in my head. Anyway, but... Uh, Mr. But Bruce, Adamson to you, Mr. and then Adamson, he's going to become yeah, Stuart, oh, yes. isn't he, anyway? Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's a big country. But, yeah, because the, 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 the other person who who said things out loud, and I hope I've got his name correctly, because I've got terrible handwriting, Ian Domit who was uh, one of the directors of Yes Scotland. I mean, I was a hero who wouldn't draw the water during the uh, independence referendum campaign, uh, speaking to people, you know, on one-to-one basis or people who are at work in in meetings and handing out and delivering, oh, my God, delivering leaflets up and down stairs and and warm it. uh, Everything's on a hill there. So I wasn't central to any of this, Leslie, but as someone who actually was a non-SNP campaigner, Near Scooby, honestly. I mean, and actually, in a funny kind of way, much of this sort of bears out, you know, some of the points that um, Ian Domit's sort of making, which is that the the SNP absolutely have a tremendous, had and still have a tremendous aversion to anyone they don't control. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's why I never joined, personally speaking, not a joiner of parties. and also very reluctant to take up a couple of invitations to stand as a candidate because it's, you know, the, the way they operated from the beginning was absolutely it was kind of their way or the highway. And they were set on producing stuff that actually didn't mesh at all with what was growing in the grassroots, which was a grassroots they couldn't control. And glory be that was the making of the Yes campaign, because mm-hmm. when the cavalry didn't arrive or arrived in kind of really not very good material, uh, local groups just decided to roll their own. At long last, people just decided to go for it themselves. Um, and if, uh, we've mentioned it in the podcast before that uh, Peter Murrell very cannily a couple of years ago uh, managed to annex the word yes by by using that yeah. at, in my own little personal protest. I don't use that new logo because that is a sort of nicked logo, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, yes, as a word, belong to the movement. And, uh, you, you know, it, you can't, unless you're going to become part and a, just a respectful, large, but just a part of a movement, you can't go around commandeering that word for your own party use, I think. But, hey, nobody listened to me. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Uh, I still got the old yes sticker uh, just as, as just a wee emblem of that was not OK. But, you know, this this sort of almost, you know, moving into the space and taking it over, that has been a characteristic of the way everything worked right from the beginning. So, you know, there's not in in some respects, there's not too much that's a surprise in what in what he's saying other than the. Um, the bitterness that he's, you mm. know, he's, he'll acknowledge um, that he basically is saying now that the SNP essentially has kind of pretty much knackered the yes movement. Um, it hasn't in the sense no. that quite evidently uh, people are quite capable of organising themselves still. Uh, although the difficulty is that if you're going to have a journey, you do need a vehicle. 
um, and the vehicle looks like a political party. And eventually the um, willingness of that political party to even acknowledge you exist is a major part of a movement feeling confident. Um, the, the reverse is also true that when you have a first minister who will not turn up to the largest events that the movement puts on, including all those all under one banner rallies with 100,000, 200,000 people walking through the streets, it sort of gives you a clear indication that mummy doesn't think you're really good enough yet. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst you can feel sort of bowed up by being on these events, and I'm sure everybody did and does, um, you're still very conscious that for some reason you're, you're 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 just not important enough to command mummy bear turning up. And that's why Humza, I would humbly suggest, needs to turn up in Sterling, Absolutely. as he's been invited to do by All Under One Banner. Um, you know, as we've discussed before, OK, you know, there was there was a president, the Northern Irish first minister in waiting, Michelle O'Neill from Sinn Féin also went to the coronation, you know, so you could argue there was a need to do that. But there definitely is a need for, for Hamza to just show willing and to fall in with a bit of the movement that's actually doing something. Um, I know that there could be, there's been some ideas about trying to put a rally on that would essentially be something he could be part of. But this one's already on the blocks. Mm -hmm. This one's there. It's been organised for a while. Um, so it would be nice to see just for once, that he would actually do this event um, because that's the heart of what this criticism is. It's, you know, just turning up to one event is not going to unravel all the the many shortcomings of the SNP, its history and its continuing behaviour, if you like. But it would be the beginning at least of acknowledging that if you're going to say you're an activist uh, first minister, you need to be an activist first yeah. minister. Well, I thought... Uh, thinking about it, that uh, with the, the the publication in print this Friday of uh, your new book Thrive, that his comment that, that the move it must be owned by the people, not by political parties. The the strive for independence, and I think that's the focus that you you take it from a non-party political perspective in the new book. It is, um, but it's actually trying to look at why. Why all the facts and figures in the universe don't seem to be able to persuade some people that Scotland could make a go of being independent. And I think that whilst it's very important, to, that's not a reason to abandon the facts, figures uh, and, and all the, the detail of what an independent proposition would bring. There's some there's some deep seated reservations that need to be outed and discussed and aired. Um, some of that has to do still with some still some of the themes that, that were there in Blossom. But the feeling that for some reason, the Scots believe we lack capacity. They also there's a lot of people think that the country is basically a bit crap. Mm -hmm. um, these are these are um, outlooks that have actually been carefully cultivated over centuries among Scots. Uh, and we've got to try to air some of this because you could go ahead and push all the statistics in the world that you want about how how advantaged Scotland is compared to a lot of our neighbours. And that just actually makes people feel even more in the doldrums because they think, my God, we've even got more energy than everybody else and we're this crap. If you don't begin to unpick some of this stuff, I worry that you you know that, that all the all the logical cases and you know rewritten policy on currency in the universe will not fall on receptive ears so 
The book tries to do quite a bit of that, including even looking at the it's the hope that kills you (laughs) Mm, um, outlook, which is another manifestation of this belief that inevitably you will fail. Um, The other another one is this idea that the Scots have a dual identity. It's captured in the notion of the Caledonian antiquity, but actually it sits in much literature. The the whole idea of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, the idea that the head and the heart will always be going in different directions, cultivated. And and an outcome of, of Scotland being uniquely a country that flies two flags on every civic building because our identity is completely torn. And I think that has been the uh, engine behind an awful lot of this belief that you can't have a rational outlook and an emotional outlook that combine into believing your country should be independent. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that. And then there's quite a a lot of looking at the fallen nature of the British state, the confidence of Scotland, by contrast, even the irritation at the SNP's inability to reach the standards we think we're capable of, which is not to be too fine about it, better than England uh, because we have better resources and we've kept more of our stuff in public ownership. So, you know, there's there's that look at, at uh, the, the, the kind of different positions of Scotland and the, and the kingdom um, of the United Kingdom over the 10 years practically that have intervened since the first independence referendum and also a look at our neighbours because the, 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 the kind of presence of Ireland right at the top of the food chain now, actually, in many respects. I mean, it's not a perfect society at all, but it's got, you know, it's done extremely well in coping with Brexit. It has been broad minded and supportive to its northern Irish neighbours in ways that has been noticed. It is um, changing the identity of being Irish because that also now encompasses the identity of being European. and it has uh, used citizens' assemblies to undo problems ne- people never thought Ireland would ever be able to tackle, essentially making it more of a secular state than anyone imagined that country could ever be. All of this matters in our consideration of where we are at the moment, because everyone around us is changing. Everyone is being able to reach the kind of democracy that they vote for. Um, and the only country, the only North Atlantic nation that is not managing to reach that is Scotland. So the, the book is really trying to argue, let's look around a bit and sort of see where we are. And you decide which template you feel is closest to what most Scots want for this country. And then try to overcome an awful lot of these deep seated lack of you know, doubts about our capacity because none of it is borne out. And one chapter particularly tries to make this point. It's one about the number of community trusts, development trusts around Scotland that are currently holding the sky up in their community. They've taken over. There's hundreds of them. Um, In fact, I've got a chunk of the book where I just list all of them because the level of disbelief is so high about the lack of capacity amongst Scots. These folk are running Villages, schools, wind turbines, hydro plants, the works. Now, how is it possible that you can think that a set of people lack capacity when, in fact, there are more Scots as volunteers running what should be public services than probably anywhere else in Europe? So 
that's that's it summarised. You don't need to read the book. <laughs> no, that, that's the way to say because the way to say having having heard all that. And where will the book be available, Leslie? Is it just good booksellers or even bad ones? <laughs> well, I I doubt I doubt that it'll get. You know, I imagine that it will now. Life is, I think. Uh, if, if you're writing something that's about independence, I think you can kind of imagine that you sometimes don't mm. get into some places. But no, I mean, it's in all the usual bookshops. Um, it's it's published by Lewith Press, so it's available there. But you can also get a signed copy from me, um, as with all the other books, on leslieriddich.com. So you can have a look there. And uh, and it will be here arriving on Friday, which is quite exciting. I'll have already got a large sack load of all my labels printed out and everything. So. Oh. Um, it's 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 quite a flurry and there's there's quite a number of events on actually which um, mm-hmm. we'll maybe just put into the notes of the podcast because there's yep. links now about how uh, you can yep. go to things. Yeah. And on that, I'm hoping I get a free copy of the book. Oh yes. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week, John. <laughs>